0: Today's episode is brought to you by Jen Chaplin's My Autobiography of Carson McCullers, which R.O. Kwan calls remarkable, a biography that's also a memoir, a story of obsession and longing. In this boundary breaking debut, Chaplin takes a deep look at the life and archives of writer Carson McCullers and discovers truths about herself in the process. She examines the ways we record queer love stories in archive in writing, in memory, and considers how the stories we tell make us who we are. Says Carmen Maria Machado, gorgeous, symphonic, tender, and brilliant, my autobiography of Carson McCullers is a monumental achievement. In this genre-bending work of nonfiction, Chaplin brings the full weight of her intellect to bear on one of literature's most important questions, how do queer readers find the truth and themselves between the lines. My autobiography of Carson McCullers is out now from Tin House books. I know I always say I'm so excited to share the episode you're about to hear, but I am so excited to share this conversation with Garth Greenwell. Every time I've heard Garth speak, I have felt changed and also felt challenged by the courage of his words. To change, he goes to such deeply, emotionally true places that don't shy away from nuance, complexity, or contradiction. That it almost feels like if we could just keep listening to Garth, the world would be redeemed by it. Garth has made two appearances on the show, not as a guest, but as part of the Tin House Live series on the podcast. One appearance was on the panel writing about joy, moderated by Tin House book editor Elizabeth DeMeo, and the other appearance is a reading that Garth gave at the Tin House Summer Writers Workshop, that we reference several times in this conversation. Garth reads from Cleanness, but also gives the most remarkable preface to that reading, that we unpack a little more today. But I definitely encourage you to seek these both out, if, as I'm confident, it will you listen to this conversation and leave wanting to hear more of Garth Greenwell. I'll include links to those episodes in my email to between the cover supporters, as well as links to Garth's writings on Carl Phillips and Lydia Yuknovich and others and other things we referenced today. And I'm also adding Garth's reading of a poem by Frank Bedart from his collection desire to the bonus audio archive. Encountering this collection desire is one of the reasons Garth Greenwell pursued poetry and left behind his music career. For the Bonus Archive, he reads and discusses the poem Overheard Through the Walls of the Invisible City. If you're interested in finding out how to subscribe to the Bonus Audio Archive, or about other benefits of becoming a supporter of Between the Covers, you can find out more at patreon.com slash betweenthecovers. I should also add before we begin that a couple spots have finally opened up for the very popular Tin House Early Reader subscription, where you receive 12 different Tin House books over the course of a year, months before they are available to the general public. Enjoy today's program with none other than Garth Greenwell.
1: These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us.
0: Stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories, and if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that.
1: You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story.
0: had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition, was working
1: at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself.
0: Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer, poet, critic, and singer Garth Greenwell. Greenwell is the author of the novella Mitko, which won the Miami University Press Novella Prize, was a finalist for the Edmund White Award for Debut Fiction, and a Lambda Literary Award, in which Greenwell later expanded into his debut novel, What Belongs to You, which Andrew Solomon at The Guardian called the best first novel I've read in a generation, which Aaron Hamburger at the New York Times called an instant classic, which was named one of the best books of the year by over 50 publications, from The New Yorker to NPR, which was long listed for the National Book Award, was a finalist for the Penn Faulkner, and a winner of the British Book Award for debut of the year. Garth Greenwell studied at the Eastman School of Music received a B.A. in literature with a minor in lesbian and gay studies from the State University of New York at Purchase, earned an M.F.A. from Washington University in St. Louis, an M.A. in English and American Literature from Harvard University, and a second M.F.A. from the Iowa Writers' Workshop in Iowa City, where he now lives. His writing as a fiction writer and literary critic has appeared in The New Yorker, The London Review of Books, and The New York Times Book Review, among many other places. Garth Greenwell is here today on Between the Covers to discuss his latest, much-anticipated follow-up to What Belongs to You, a book that is not a sequel, but is set in the same world of his debut, entitled Cleanness, out from FSG. Alexander Chee says, In cleanness, I found an end to a loneliness I didn't know until now how to describe. Greenwell maps the worlds our language walls off, sex, love, love shame and friendship, the foreign and the familiar, and finds the sublime. There are visceral shocks like I've never encountered in print, and they delighted me again and again with each plunge we take beneath the surface of life, lost and new worlds appear. This could only be the work of a master. Frank Bedard adds, Garth Greenwell, whose first book is a masterpiece, amazingly has written a second book That is also a masterpiece. The great enterprise that Joyce and Lawrence began to write with utter literal candor about sex, grounding one's moral life and philosophical insight in what that candor reveals about us, finds fulfillment, a late apotheosis in Greenwell's work. Cleanness is the act of a master. Finally, Dwight Garner for the New York Times adds, You pick Greenwell's novels up with asbestos mitts and set them down upon trivets to protect your table from heat damage. Greenwell has an uncanny gift, one that comes along rarely. Every detail in every scene of cleanness glows with meaning. It's as if, while other writers offer data, he is providing metadata. This writer's sentences are so dazzlingly fresh that it is as if he has thrown his cape in the street in front of each one. Welcome to Between the Covers, Garth Greenwell. Thank you so much for having me. I wanted to start with your reading at Tin House, the writer's workshop in the summer, which we aired earlier on the podcast. You read an extended, very explicit sex scene. That was remarkable. But just as remarkable was your preface. And I was hoping maybe... We could talk about some of that because you prepare us and orient us to what we're about to hear. So one of the things you said in that preface was you had an aspiration to write something that was 100% pornographic and 100% high art at the same time. So let's start there with that goal or aspiration.
1: Sure. So, you know, one of the things that surprised me about the reception of What Belongs to You was how much people talked about the sex in the book when really there's almost no sex in the book, um, maybe three pages of explicit sex writing. And, you know, I think it, it said something about where mainstream American publishing was in 2016, um, that that seemed remarkable to people. In cleanness, I knew that there was much more thinking I wanted to do about sex. Um, you know, I come from a background, my literary background is in poetry, And American poetry's relationship to sex and to writing sex is very different from that of American prose. My great teachers in poetry were Frank Bedard and Carl Phillips, who both write sex in remarkably um, brave and explicit ways. And so it never occurred to me that it might be interesting. Well, it's not quite true. I do think it's interesting in and of itself to write sex and especially to write the queer sexual body explicitly. I do think that's interesting. But that wasn't what excited me. What excited me was the idea of pairing a kind of absolute explicitness about sex with this peculiar technology of the kind of sentence that I'm attracted to, um, which is a sentence with a history. It's a sentence that I think of as a kind of technology for producing inwardness, for producing consciousness, this you know, sentence that is at once expansive and recursive that falls back on itself and interrogates itself and corrects itself. Um, You know, that combination, the idea of not just putting sex on the page, but putting both the sexual body and then this kind of hypercharged exploration of consciousness, that that combination, which is what I mean when I talk about 100% pornographic and 100% high art, this kind of Henry James Proustian sentence. Um, It was that combination that I thought might be productive of Revelation.
0: Well, I want to talk a lot more about your sentences. But before we do, I want to ask what's probably a naive question about pornography, because I know there's a lot of scholarly work that's been written about pornography that I'm mostly not well versed in. Uh, But here it is anyway. So Cleanness has two stories in particular, Badar and Little Saint, uh, the latter of which you read from last summer, that are extremely explicit sexually in a way that's quite rare in literature. But they also made me wonder if explicitness is the right metric for whether something is pornographic mm. uh, because your sex scenes deepen character. They raise existential questions. They allow for nuance and contradiction and complexity and, and no way... Do I feel like you're writing pornographically? And it, I, the analog for me is, is actually a film. And I wondered if you've seen this film, a film Stranger by the Lake, a French thriller. Sure. Yeah. Super explicit. Yeah. I can't remember an, what I would call a non-pornographic film um, that showed the things that it showed. Uh, and yet at no point did I feel like I was watching pornography mm. at the same time. That may be because I'm using the wrong Definition of what pornography is, but I'm curious about your thoughts about explicitness versus pornography, and is it a degree of explicitness that makes something pornographic?
1: You know, I do think people define the word in different ways. I tend not to like a kind of derogatory sense of the word pornographic. Um, I mean, I guess you know, I don't, I don't know how I would define pornography. Maybe I would define it as a work, an object, um, that has as its primary focus an explicit representation of the sexual body. Um, I do think pornography can be art and I do think art can be pornographic. If I do use pornography in a kind of derogatory sense, which again, I don't like to do. Um, but when I hear it used that way, what I understand, I sort of put it beside um, something like propaganda in the sense that I think both pornography in this derogatory sense and propaganda want us to feel a single thing. And, um, you know, I do think art can arouse us. I think that's a powerful response, a powerful emotional response art can elicit. Um, But I don't think the art I care about most ever wants me to feel a single thing. And so if it arouses me, it also makes me question that arousal or makes charges that arousal with a different kind of emotional signification. Um, So I guess I would say that, I mean, I, you know, I'm not particularly attached to any definition of pornography. Um, I would just say that I do think, you know, works that are centered on the sexual body as their primary focus or subject matter can be art but that a lot of you know that kind of work that exists in our culture, I think really the great majority of it um you know because we do live in a moment that is you know in which we are inundated by images by representations of sexual bodies to a degree that's utterly unprecedented in human history, but it does seem to me that a lot of those representations of the sexual body um go to great lengths to kind of expunge personhood from those bodies, to expunge consciousness from those bodies. Um, And so while there is this abundance of representations of bodies, I feel like there's a real dearth of representations of embodiedness of bodies with consciousness. And that seems to me like a real opening for especially literature to serve as a kind of intervention, because Mm. You know, I do think literature is the best technology we have for the communication of consciousness, for the communication of what existence feels like from the inside. And, you know, sex interests me because I think it's one of our densest, most complicated acts of communication. Um, Acts of communication, also acts of Um, self-making. The things that interest me about sex require consciousness, require the representation of consciousness. And I mean, and that's really the goal, um, you know, to have both the body and a sort of fully conscious person on the page.
0: Well, it's interesting, because I've had many guests come on the show and talk about writing the body, or embodied writing. And paradoxically, it's often remained abstract for me, Mm. what exactly is being meant. And I don't think it's always the same thing from writer to writer. But what I really loved about both listening to you talk about this now and in general, and your conversation with your editor, Mitzi Angel, is you, you've you articulated a way of bringing the body into syntax and to sen- into sentences that really I feel like I can grasp. And I, I wanted to read something you said in your conversation with Mitzi and then just have you maybe talk a little bit more about it. So in that conversation, you said there's a conventional division in English syntax between parataxis or coordinated syntax and hypotaxis or subordinated syntax. There's an easy way in which you could think of parataxis as the syntax of feeling and experience and hypotaxis as a syntax of analysis and thought. I want to write sentences that explore that distinction. Before I talk maybe about the light bulb that went off for me reading that, I, I want to hear about the syntax here in light of the marriage of explicit sex and high art and writing the body.
1: You know, it's it's funny hearing you read that. I don't know if there's a typo in the interview but I think it should be not explore but explode is what I intended to say. To oh. explode that difference. Um,
0: I think it I think you're probably right.
1: Um it's funny, you know, now it's it could entirely be explore in, in the
0: explode and you know, makes you know, more sense reading yeah, you.
1: Yeah. No, that's that's really what um you know, that distinction seems to me I mean obviously a useful one and a meaningful one. But when I'm writing you know, I utterly reject the idea that um, analysis and experience are somehow severed from one another. And there's a way, you know, so the way that I think about syntax, um, it is something I feel very much in my body. I mean, syntax to me is a very kinesthetic um, thing you know you mentioned in your introduction you were uh, very kind it's uh, sort of uh, um adding the label singer to after my name um i'm not a singer anymore but it's true that that was my introduction to art um and you know that is an extraordinary education in the materiality of language you know to sort of um feel and also in the in really in the materiality of syntax because you know, as composers articulate syntax in musical phrases, when one sings, one feels that in one's body. And, um, you know, this weird syntax that I like, which does have hypotaxis, which is invested in analysis and subordination and the kind of hierarchy of information and the and syntax of trying to make sense of one's existence, one's experience... But then is also, I hope, constantly um sort of exploding into viscerality. Um you know, I'm attracted to a certain um kind of non-functional syntax. Like people often talk about I often talk about Henry James in relation to my sentences, and it's true that Henry James is Um, probably for me the most important writer of sentences in English. But Henry James would be horrified by my sentences because Mm -hmm. my sentences break grammatical propriety all the time. And um, I think part of the excitement of that for me is a sense of sort of um, explosiveness, transgression, sort of creating apertures, creating bridges, um, like forcing sentences to move in ways that English generally doesn't permit. you know, But all of that movement, I mean, there's a way that this constant forward and backward, this constant expansiveness and recursiveness that I'm attracted to in syntax, I mean, I hope that that in some ways is mimetic of desire, the sort of pursuit and retreat of desire, and also even of sex. Um and, you know, one of the things that I hope is true um, and part of the reason that that people talked about sex so much and what belongs to you, even though there's very little sex actually represented on the page, is that I hope that there is a way in which the sentences themselves feel sexy. I mean, you know, as I experience them, sometimes they do or that's one of the ways in which you know, um, if I'm writing well then my fantasy of what my sentences can do is that they can serve as psychology that in the same way that, you know, say in opera, you know, a lot of the emotion is not conveyed by whatever melodic line a singer is singing. Much of the emotion is conveyed by the orchestra, by the accompaniment, by the texture. Um, That, to me, is something syntax can do. And there's a way that syntax, you know, if a writer's working really well, then um, syntax does so much of the work of emotional notation for us. We don't have to notate the psychological state of a character. The sentences make us feel it. The sentences make us participate in it, the shapes of the sentences.
0: Well, I I love that you characterize these sentences as being potentially erotic because in a way I feel like they're coded historically in the sense that I, and I, and I love this influence, but when you talk about James or, or I also think of Proust, I think of a writer who's stepping away from action and looking back at memories, maybe literally from um, a distance from what has happened. And yet you're, you've employed these same or similar sentences or kindred sentences um, to sexual encounter itself. So we are in scenes of action, but with language that we would typically associate with recollection.
1: Hmm. That's a a beautiful characteristic of it. I mean, I guess it is just true for me. And this is, I mean, this is something that people sometimes feel frustrated about in my writing. And, you know, um, one of the things someone said to me once in workshop that stuck with me even though I immediately rejected it and sometimes I talk about talk of it as like you know um this is very ungenerous but it's like the stupidest thing anyone ever said to me in workshop uh there was a tweet once someone was collecting those sayings and this was my offering um it was um nobody thinks this much when they're having sex and Um, I mean, that just feels existentially wrong to me. Like, I mean, that may be true for some people, but for me, it's not. Like, sex is radically productive of consciousness. Sex is radically productive of inwardness. And so, yes, this kind of reflective syntax um, juxtaposed with or forced to intermingle with a kind of syntax of immediacy. Um, This is, again, kind of hypotaxis, parataxis. Parataxis. Um that's my ideal, you know I just I am someone for whom like abstract thought is viscerally affective, full of affect, full of emotion, full of visceral excitement um, and then visceral experience, immediate experience, physical experience is automatically productive of reflection. Mm. That's just how I move through the world. And so, you know, yeah, trying to figure out a way to make a sentence that can um, be adequate to that, I guess, is part of what I'm trying to do as a writer.
0: In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Garth Greenwell about his latest book, Cleanness. So I wanted to leap out of the sentence and back out into the narrative at large, but still talk about language in this larger context because our protagonist is an American poet teaching in Bulgaria. And I was hoping we could speak to language with regards to being a gay American protagonist entering a gay Bulgarian cruising scene, particularly in What Belongs to You, where we see him cruising in the bathrooms beneath beneath the Palace of Culture in Sofia. He doesn't speak Bulgarian well, and it feels like he discovers that the nonverbal language of cruising requires little translation nevertheless. And I wondered if that felt, if my characterization feels true that he discovers a certain fluency, uh, in his encounters, even though he's in a different country.
1: That's exactly right. And that's exactly what I felt when I discovered those bathrooms in Bulgaria. Um, And, you know, I discovered them by chance, I was not looking for them. And it was very early in my time in Bulgaria. And I did have this experience of descending from this surface world where I was still struggling to say the most basic things into this subterranean world where I was entirely fluent. And I do think there's this wondrous, you know, it's, it's a difficult contradictory thing to hold in mind. Because on one hand, I mean, of course, Queerness is situated in specific cultures and inflected by, by specific cultures. And yet it has been true in my experience that cruising is a kind of um, universal language. And it's been a real gift to me to be able to have intimate, affective encounters with people with whom I don't have a shared language. And then, you know, it was also very important important to me and then important to my ability to write these two books that um, as I did learn Bulgarian and as I became um, proficient in Bulgarian, um, you know, the wonderful thing about cruising is that it mixes up all of the categories that usually organize our lives. And so I got to have encounters with people whom otherwise I would never have had occasion to meet. Very often, people who had no access to English, and um, you know, queerness became this wonderful entry into a, ki- a, a side of Bulgaria, a side of Sofia that you know, my American colleagues at the American College of Sofia had no access to. Hmm. And um, you know, that's been true for me. I do think that's an extraordinary gift of queerness. It's, it was a gift of queerness for me very early on as a reader that in my wonderful, life-saving independent bookstore in Louisville, Kentucky, um, there was a little corner of lesbian and gay literature. And, you know, I could pull down Mishima and Yorsenar and Baldwin and, you know, um, Cavafy and feel that even though they were describing worlds very different from my world, that somehow they were speaking to me, the secret of myself. Mm. And, um, yeah. So to try to write and it's in those early scenes in what belongs to you to try to write that language, to try to show how that kind of nonverbal queer language enables what will become a life-changing relationship, um, That was actually a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a lot of fun to try to get something that's been really important to me in my own
0: life onto the page. And there's also this way, having a narrator who's speaking a language that's not their first language, is playing a role both in the in characterization, but also in some of the tension and suspense in the book. And particularly, I'm thinking of Gospodar, the one, the story where the narrator is the submissive in a sadomasochistic encounter that becomes one that of existential peril Mm. um and being in this position to a language one doesn't master it feels like there's potentially paradoxical effects and on the one hand i wonder if limited vocabulary can be liberating like maybe you can try on a different way of being in the world when you have a limited vocabulary, or maybe you're more brave to say certain things because of the words being different and not having an exact correspondence or different correspondence. But then also when this sexual encounter goes off the rails, it feels like it's also heightens the, at least for the reader, the fear and sense of peril. Does he understand what is being said to him? Will he be understood as things careen? past the limits of how submissive he wants to be. right? Um, so I guess I, I wanted to hear a little bit about how you view the benefits of telling both of these books from the perspective of somebody uh, moving in the world in a second language. So, um, you know, the
1: fact that the narrator has to navigate a world in Bulgarian, in a language that I mean, we sort of see him become more proficient in the language, but it's a language in which he doesn't, even when he speaks it quite well, he doesn't have the defenses that he has in English. And that's true both in his relations with other people. So I think in what belongs to you, part of the intimacy and vulnerability he has with Mitko, this man he has this obsessive relationship with, um, part of that is due to the fact that um, he doesn't have the sort of verbal, you know, mastery he's very attached to in English. Um, and then also in, in cleanness and in the section that you're talking about, um, that's true with this other man, but maybe more profoundly, he doesn't have the defenses he's erected against himself. And so there's a moment in the story that you're referring to where, this man he's having this encounter with, this older Bulgarian man, tells him to say what he wants. And that's something that the narrator is used to doing in English. And he sort of has his list of things he likes. But then, because he's speaking Bulgarian, and because he speaks it imperfectly, it's as though the very imperfection the very lack of mastery gives him access to some other part of himself, some part of himself he hasn't explored before. And that's both exciting and frightening. You know, I um, love learning other languages. I love the experience of being a child in another language. Um, And also a lot of my life has happened in this space of sort of constant transaction between multiple languages. So while I was writing What Belongs to You, while I was writing some of the chapters of cleanness, I was living in Bulgaria, and I taught in English in Sofia. But if I was not teaching on weekends or during breaks, I would go days without speaking English. Um, In my life now, um, the language of my house is Spanish. My partner is Spanish, and we speak Spanish with one another. And that experience of sort of living in a language that is not one's own. is just a space of consciousness that I really love. And it's a space of consciousness I wanted to get on the page. And it's also something that affects the syntax because, you know, one of the things that the sentences have to do is they have to find a shape that will accommodate the constant transaction between the two languages and the constant translation and the constant apprehension and misapprehension. And that was exciting to me musically. You hmm. know, I like the shape thinking takes when it's strung between two or more languages.
0: Hmm. Well, it also, this this idea of the limits of language in this setting also reminded me of a couple things you wrote when you were writing about the sex scenes of Lydia Yuknevich in the New Yorker. So I wanted to read a couple things you said and see if they spark any further thought. And hopefully I won't read a typo this time. (laughs) So you said, for Yuknovich, extreme experience, which includes rough sex, inebriation, pain, and making art, offers access to a self that precedes or exceeds the rational. It submerges her characters in the corporeal and instinctual, bringing them to what she calls the brink of animal. In such a state, violence can be, quote unquote, productive of beauty. And you add Yuknovich's sadomasochistic sex scenes also owe a debt to Michel Foucault and his notion that consensual, ritualized sexual violence can affirm the limited being and the limitlessness into which it leaps.
1: Lydia Yuknovich is is one of my favorite living writers, and I think one of the best writers we have right now in English in writing the sexual body, um, and I am inspired. So I was, I was writing that about her work in general, but especially about the small backs of children, um, which I think is just an extraordinary novel, a novel I'm teaching this semester at the Iowa Writers Workshop. Um, I do think Lydia is working in a philosophical tradition that's adjacent to, but slightly different from the tradition I, I feel myself working in or aspiring to. Um, and I don't know, it's funny, I've never tried to articulate to myself what that difference is. I know that for me, S&M, and as I think about S&M as it exists in queer contexts, um, you know, I do think it's a technology of transformation. And I think it holds out the possibility of drawing a frame around something, creating an aesthetically charged space, which I think the space of an s and encounter is, and within that space, allowing us to fully engage with that part of the human apparatus that I think much of the time in much of our lives we are told we must repress. I think we can engage with, um, a desire that, that multiple characters in cleanness voice, which is the desire not to be. I think one can engage in shame and in, um, an attempt to transform that negation, the negation of shame, the negation of the desire not to exist. You know, I think a lot about what it means to, as part of um, the sexual production of pleasure, to make use of violence, whether that's physical violence or whether that's the violence of language. Um, And, you know, I think there are Simple arguments made about that that are not easy to dismiss, but that I think are wrong, which is that the use of violence, verbal or physical, obviously within this sort of aesthetically charged space that is sanctioned by consent, um, that that is a perpetuation of that violence. I, I don't think that's true. I actually think it might be something that gives us an escape from the perpetuation of violence. I think violence always wants to be perpetuated. I think the sort of default is for violence to perpetuate itself. Something that seems very true to me is an idea of the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, who has um, who articulated this idea of the principle of the conservation of violence as a way to explain how, say, a kid who is bullied at school comes home and bullies his younger sibling, you know, that idea that when we experience violence, we immediately seek an object to pass that violence along to. Um, well, what happens in SM, it seems to me, like if I can take a word like faggot, which was a word that, you know, um my father Used when he found out I was gay and I was 14, and a word that really is a kind of scar in my life. If that word, if I can create a context in which that word is placed in the mouth of a lover, and instead of causing me grief, gives me access to rapture, then that seems to me really like a kind of remarkable strategy of survival, a way not to pass that violence along, but instead to transform it. And I do think one of the things that I find endlessly inspiring about queer people is that queer people are geniuses of transformation. And I think, you know, one of the ways of understanding the history of queer art is one of taking stigma and turning it into style. One of the ways of understanding the history of queer politics is one of taking stigma and turning it into solidarity. And one of the ways of understanding a history of queer desire is that of taking stigma and turning it into pleasure. Mm. Um, and that was part of what I said to, to preface at Tin House this story, The Little Saint. So Gospodar is a story in which that technology of transformation that is an S&M encounter doesn't work And when I wrote that story, I knew it was really important that I write a story in which it did work. And in The Little Saint, the narrator has an experience um, that I think delivers him into a space of radical possibility and one that has taken shame and also his own potential for deriving pleasure from violence and transform that into a kind of remarkable um, affective experience of another person, something like love, and also something like joy.
0: Well, When I think about this desire to not be, and also some of these paradoxical ways transformation can happen, and then back to the line of Foucault, the limited being and the limitlessness into which it leaps. It feels like it veers into the territory that almost feels mystical or quasi religious. So I was hoping maybe you could speak about the apophatic or the via negativa and what those, what those are and how they relate to your work.
1: I am not a religious person. I'm very much, very assertively, affirmatively, joyously atheist. Um, But religion and religious thought has been very important in my life. Um, One of my earliest literary obsessions was with St. Augustine. And the via negativa or negative theology, mystical theology, is something that sort of sank into my writerly DNA very early on. So the sort of Cliff Notes, very simplified version of apophatic theology is it comes from a paradox. And the paradox is precisely that of trying to create a meeting point between the limited and the limitless. So Foucault was also a student of the mystics. But I do think it's just a fundamental sort of problem of human life. Like we are these limited beings who are able to imagine limitlessness. And so we're always trying to find out ways to get them to meet. The incarnation is one attempt to theorize such a meeting this limitless being in a limited body. Um, For apophatic theology, the issue is that God is limitless, language is limited, and therefore we cannot say anything about God. We cannot make any statement about God that could be true because any statement about God would limit God. And so one cannot say God is X, Y, or Z. One can only say God is not X, Y, or Z. But then that creates a problem because, of course, that limits God. And so one can't say God is not X. One can only say God is not, not X. But then that's a problem. One has to say God is not, not, not X. God is not, 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 not X, etc. So what's fascinating is that this creates a syntax. And I do think it is more for me inspiring as a kind of linguistic phenomenon than it is of, as a logical phenomenon as a as a phenomenon of reasoning i mean it's an attempt to um reason beyond reason or you know the mystic the mystical writers will talk about unreason right it's an attempt to think about impossible things and it's an attempt to take something that seems like an impasse an irresolvable dilemma finite humanity infinite God, how can they meet? And it doesn't resolve or solve that dilemma, but it makes it mobile. It makes it productive. One can infinitely say, not, 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 not. And there's a way that it generates a kind of energy. So it does a couple of things. One is, it keeps things in motion. So instead of something just being a dead end, It keeps turning, not, not, not. And there's a way in which, you know, you keep coming at a problem from different angles, sort of hoping somehow, you know, what seems like a closed door will open. But also it becomes generative of an extraordinary energy. And of course, the goal of the mystics was what they called divine union, was an experience of ecstasy. And mystical writing, which has this remarkable syntax generated by all this, not this, not, not this, not, not, not this, is often, I think it's a kind of launch pad. It's an attempt to sort of generate a kind of psychic energy that can launch one into that divine union. And it can be extraordinarily beautiful. If you read Meister Eckhart, if you read Marguerite Perrette, I mean, these, if you read Simone Weil, I mean, these are gorgeous writers. I mean, so it's productive of beauty. And that is really useful for me. The problem for me is not God. But when I look at human life, I see a set of double binds. One of the principal ones as I experience my own life being that it seems to me part of the human, that there is something in us that desperately desires to be clean. And there is something in us that desperately desires to bathe in filth. And that is an irresolvable dilemma. There's no way to sort of think think your way out of that. You know, the way that culture has approached that dilemma is to valorize one of those desires, the desire to be clean, and then to insist that the other desire be brutally repressed. And whole systems of thought and feeling and legislation have been predicated on that idea of repressing. Well, it is clear to me that repression is always a a recipe for disaster. Instead, this mystical tool, technique, the via negativa is for me inspiring because it suggests a way not to think of solving these dilemmas, but instead kind of inventing linguistic devices, inventing a syntax that can allow us to dwell in it. And that can allow us to make it productive, to make it productive of beauty of affect in a way that, um, you know, the, the promise of mysticism is that somehow one does break through the double bind. Somehow one does find the infinite in the finite. That somehow, you know, and this is how like lots of contemporary philosophy, like lots of what we call deconstruction is just this mysticism sort of uh, brought into the present day. This idea that whenever we have a dichotomy – whenever we have good, bad, clean, filthy, male, female, that always within one of those apparently monolithic um, ideas, one finds the other. And I hope what this book does, what cleanness does, I hope that finally it insists that actually... In cleanness we find filth, in filth we find cleanness. And that in negation, you know, that story gospodar, it begins with the narrator saying, I want to be nothing, I want to be nothing. And it ends with the line composing as best I could my human face. Somehow, in this experience of intense negation, he arrives at what seems to me like a remarkable affirmation
0: been talking today to garth greenwell the author of cleanness so so maybe do to, to reiterate a little bit of what you've just said in other places you've traced a path from apophatic theology through heidegger to judith butler all of whom aim to destroy binaries not explore them but destroy or explode them um, and it also reminded me of something you said in your essay about the, Hanukkah film, the piano teacher that you wrote for Criterion, Um, the juxtaposition of refinement and rawness, discipline and release, culture and degradation is the thematic and narrative engine of the film, which works finely like Thomas Mann's Death in Venice, a book the film recalls to dissolve these dichotomies. And when you talk about how cleanness the book is aspiring to explode or destroy binaries, it also feels like cleanness, the concept or the aspiration to be clean, is the opposite in a way. So there's a certain paradox I, I think you're working on there. Is that is that right, that that cleanness isn't a good thing in this in this notion, that cleanness, which a lot of people might think of as good, is actually in this notion something that is troubling and needs to be troubled?
1: I think cleanness... You know, which obviously can spur us to acts of great um, moral value, I would say. But I think when we become over-attached to a sense of our own cleanness, our own purity, our own righteousness, um, it's the most dangerous idea in the world. And the title is um, an allusion to a medieval English poem By the Gawain poet, the poet who wrote Gawain and the Green Knight, which is a retelling of Bible stories, um, one of the most important among them, that of Sodom and Gomorrah. And that is cleanness. You know what it means, you know, that nightmare vision of cleanness, which is just wiping the slate clean, um, which is utter destruction you know, that is the kind of cleanness or that's the the nightmare vision that haunts the whole book. You know, and I do think I see that everywhere in human life, the danger of our desire for cleanness. I see it, you know, one of the places where the book um, is most interested in exploring it is in the relationship between shame and a rhetoric of pride. Um, You know, the rhetoric of pride in queer contexts is, I think, a life-giving rhetoric. You know, it was so important for me when I was 14 to see a pride parade. But if pride becomes a coercive rhetoric, if um, if we become so attached to a rhetoric of pride that it becomes impossible to acknowledge or explore or talk about shame, then I think that's devastating. And if we become attached to a sense of ourselves, which is, you know, a sense I've battled in my own self, that you know that somehow there is a true, authentic, pure, clean self that predated the filth of homophobia, that the filth of shame, that somehow... You know, there is preceding the moment when my father called me a faggot, that there is a true self that somehow that then, you know, that word poured filth on and that if only I could clean that filth away, that, that, that should be the goal to clean that filth away and reclaim some authentic self. I think that's deadly. You know, I mean, the wound that that word was for me when I was 14, um, um, My self formed itself around that wound, grew around that wound. There is no me without it. Queer people are born, still are born, even more so were born 40 years ago, into a world where homophobia is the air we breathe. There's nothing else for us to make ourselves out of. And so I think it's deadly to be attached to an idea of cleanness. Instead, I think the challenge is, and this is, I think, maybe the deepest question or theme of both of my books, what do we do to this thing, with this thing, that inalienably belongs to us? You know, what do we do with the fact that we are beings formed by um, lessons of shame that we know were bankrupt, were false, but that, you know, we will never get to be selves who were not taught those lessons. So then how can we make it productive? How can we make it not just, um, something we've run from or something we've or something we deny, but instead something that we can make, um, again, productive, productive of sociality, productive of beauty, productive of pleasure. Like That's um, one way in which I hope the book is trying to think beyond these binaries and is sort of refusing what I think is the deadly idea that um, purity exists.
0: Hmm. Well, to, to stay with cleanness and apathetic apathetic, uh, theology and quasi-mystical notions. If we jump from Gospodar, where our narrator narrator is submissive to the story Little Saint, which you've talked a little bit about, where he's in the far less familiar role of being the dominant, the man you call the Little Saint has perhaps turned promiscuity itself into a saint-like virtue, Almost a, a radical act of hospitality, um, where his own existence is only there for others. And I was hoping you could talk about the little saint in this light, this gesture that the little saint is making, and whether you see this gesture as apathetic or 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 not.
1: I think it. I think it probably is apathetic. I mean, I do think the contrary of this deadly version of cleanness for me. It's opposite is promiscuity and promiscuity to me is the great human virtue. By promiscuity, I mean the delight, the pleasure, the excitement we take in mixture. And, you know, I urge promiscuity on my students in their reading. I urge promiscuity on my students in their art making. You know, this idea that tradition is never pure, that tradition is always a hybrid thing, um, that great artists use everything. You know, Shakespeare is the most promiscuous writer. Um, I also think promiscuity is a great virtue in sociality. You know, I think communities are stronger for being diverse. I think cultures are stronger for exchange. And for me, promiscuity is also a virtue sexually. Um, I wanted in The Little Saint, and not just there throughout my work, I wanted to take seriously sexual practices and sexual communities that queer people, and especially gay men, have invented that are almost always only derided the sociality that gay men create through cruising through sexual promiscuity is, I think, almost universally seen as morally unserious. It seems to me deeply wrong. You know, um, the extraordinary networks of care that emerged in the 80s and 90s, in the face of the early AIDS crisis, emerged precisely from queer sexual communities and queer communities of chosen kin. ACT UP was an outgrowth of these sexual communities. It was also often a manifestation of these sexual communities. You know, when you read um, something like David France's book, How to Survive a Plague one of the things he wonderfully conveys is how much cruising took place at ACT UP meetings. Like that was part of what allowed them to survive the joyfulness of that, that was produced by these communities. That just to me, utterly refutes the idea that gay male promiscuity is morally unserious as a form of sociality. I did want to take seriously The idea that promiscuity could be a discipline of radical hospitality, by which I mean hospitality in that grand sense, which invokes the question, how does one engage with the other? What is our responsibility to the other? You know, I think when I started writing the story, The Little Saint. The title came very early. It's a play on the name of this character, which we don't learn his name, but we know that the root of it means light, um, which is the root in Bulgarian and Slavic languages generally of many words associated with sanctity in the church. And so the narrator's nickname for this man becomes Svechito, The Little Saint. And I think, you know, I knew this was going to be a chapter that was going to be one of these 100% pornographic, 100% high art chapters. And I think, you know, I I think I thought the title was a little ironic at first, that there was a little Frisson, this guy who wants to do very dirty things, being called the little saint. But by the end of it, um, it was clear to me that the title is just 100% earnest. And that in fact... This man um, lives a life of extraordinary integrity, extraordinary moral integrity. And is that apathetic? Yes. You know, one of the things that he makes part of his moral practice, his practice of engaging with the other, is an insistence on unprotected sex. He knows that that he knows the risks that that entails and takes them on himself um, that is an apophatic discipline um, it's a discipline that the narrator feels very complexly about um, you know it's something that he um, he doesn't uh, you know it's not something that he easily sort of approves of although I hope that you know where they arrive at each other the question of approval or judgment just doesn't apply but it is he has sort of decided that certain values are more important to him than his survival and I do think that that is one of the prerequisites of saintliness
0: I wanted to pivot from uh, the apophatic but but to poetry and I feel like there's often something in common between poets, or and a religious disposition, even if even potentially an atheistic poet, in the sense that there's in poetry there's often the decentering of the human, an engagement with the limits of what can be known, uh, with mystery and paradox, and with death. And in CLEanness, the protagonist teaches the poetry of Frank O'Hara to his students, and it shocks them. And perhaps similarly in in your real life when you took your first poetry class with James Longenbach, when you weren't yet pursuing poetry, that he had you read Frank Bedard's Desire, and you say it overwhelmed you. So I was hoping maybe you could talk about these two experiences, the, the fictional students and their encounter with O'Hara, and your actual experience encountering Bedard's Desire when you were still pursuing a music career.
1: I'll start with the second part of that. I mean, my experience of poetry was utterly overwhelming. Um, You know, I had become interested in poetry because I was a singer and because I was singing poems. And I had the great good fortune at the Eastman School of Music to study with a voice teacher who took poetry very seriously and made us engage in really very sophisticated ways with the poems we were singing. And that got me started writing my own poems. And then Um, James Langenbach let me take his class and he's an extraordinary teacher. And at the end of that semester, I had come to feel that poetry was the noblest thing one could devote one's life to. Um, Speaking of religion, you know, I am an atheist, but I'm also someone with a devotional temperament. And I do think, you know, when I look at my life, which has a lot of discontinuity in it, it does seem to me like the life of someone with a devotional temperament seeking an object of devotion. And for me, that object is art. And, um, you know, poetry is a wonderful object of devotion because it's so pure, because one knows when the, one's not going to have an audience, one's not going to be famous, one's not going to make any money. You know, um, being a novelist feels terribly degraded after having spent 20 years being a poet. Um, Poetry, and especially experiencing or discovering the work of Frank Bedard. Um, you know, Frank Bedard's work, uh, to me, he's the most important living American poet. I mean, for me as an artist, he's the most important living American writer. And there is a kind of utter integrity, utter commitment, utter fearlessness in his work. I mean, he's someone who I think absolutely serves as a model to me for what it means to stare at something that seems like an irresolvable dilemma, to stare at something that seems like an abyss and not to turn away from it, but instead to make one's art out of the act of throwing oneself into it. Um, Which, you know, I do think is always a perilous thing to do. And when I think of someone like Frank Bedart, who for 50 years has been going into the abyss and giving us reports on what he finds there, I feel an immense gratitude. Um, so that experience of poetry for me was a kind of revolution. And the narrator in teaching Frank or er, sorry, in te- teaching Frank O'Hara, the other great American poetic Frank, um, he wants to cause something like a revolution In his students, you know, he wants to teach a gay writer. You know, he believes that, um, I mean, he's teaching in a place where queer kids are incredibly vulnerable. And um, he believes that representation is important. And so he wants to put queer texts in front of his kids. And he talks about choosing the the queer poet he's going to teach. And, you know, not wanting to give them poetry that would reinforce, he says, their ideas about what it means to be queer. Um, What he feels Frank O'Hara does is, and I think this too, Frank O'Hara is a great poet of queer joy. And to put before them poems like Having a Coke With You, um, which are poems of queer happiness, um, that that for those students, he says, they're shocked. And for the student who comes to him in the first chapter of Cleanness called Mentor, um, that student did feel or does feel like those poems um, presented a possibility of life to him he had not imagined before. And that You know, that to me is the great gift of art. And I felt that very strongly as a high school teacher that I feel it very strongly still um, teaching at the university level that, you know, my what I can do as a teacher. I mean, I can't make anyone an artist. I can't teach anyone how to be the artist they should be. But I can try to um, introduce them to art that presents new possibilities for them.
0: Well, last summer when you were at, t- at Ten House and doing the reading, you you talked about not liking craft talks, but that Keats' poem, Ode to Melancholy, and Bardart's prose poem, Borges and I were great teachers of craft. And the the latter has that great first line, we fill pre-existing forms, and when we fill them, change them and are changed. And I kind of wanted to move to talk about form in a larger sense, because I think you have a really masterful, deliberate way of using form. For instance, in What Belongs to You, the middle section, the section about your narrator's childhood in Kentucky, it, it's one uninterrupted 40 page paragraph, which sort of reminded me of Thomas Bernhardt or Zeebold. And similarly, the middle section of Cleanness departs from the form of the rest of the book. The nine stories are in three sections. But this is the only section that is named, and this section is the only section that is told linearly with progressive time and chronology and with a shape that is a nod to storytelling convention because there's a beginning and a middle and the end. So I believe there's meaning in all of these choices. So let's talk about the middle section of cleanness, loving R, and how the content and form are in conversation with each other.
1: The first thing I knew about the book when I figured out it was a book was that this narrative of transformative love would be at the center and that it would be chronological. You know, I don't think a lot, is this true? I think it's true that I don't think a lot about form at the global level and that almost everything that happens in my writing happens instinctually, like not by deliberation, but instead by feel, and that everything grows out of sentences. But I did know at some point, you know, after I had written three or four chapters, when the structure of the book became clear to me, that this story was the heart of the book, and the heart of the sort of um, part of the narrator's life that is dramatized by cleanness. And then I also knew, though, and I, I knew that this story had to have a beginning, a middle and an end. And that, um, yes, I mean, I guess I, I did want it to be uh, sort of immediately legible by the rules of conventional storytelling to have that kind of arc arc. And then I also knew that by the time the reader got there, I wanted the reader to know the whole arc of the relationship, the fact that it had ended, the fact that it had ended in a way that was devastating for the narrator. Like I wanted all of that information um, to have already been presented by the time they arrive at the beginning.
0: Well, let me put forth what I what the form made me wonder. And it wasn't something that I felt confident about. But um, the rest of the book isn't told in, chrono- in a chrono- chronological way. You've described it like a, story- like a song cycle. Yeah. And so um, things are juxtaposed and in, in maybe based on tone or mood or theme. Um, but right at the center, in the middle of this, this triptych loving R is a meditation on paintings. And the paintings seem unremarkable at first. And then the narrator sees them as striving for an ideal and he perceives them as emanating their own light. And there are no shadows in these paintings. And this shadowless, um, light emanating painting becomes sort of a promise of maybe what his life could be Loving R. Um, Similarly, when they go to the opera, he experiences it as life scrubbed of shame. And over and over again, in the Loving R sections, we get these motifs of light and darkness. And it feels like Throughout these stories, the the couple is testing out whether they can express their love in in the light of day, out on the streets as a quote-unquote normal couple, if only for brief moments, and asking the question, can our love survive out here? Um, Can we have an enduring relationship? Um, I guess I wondered if your form was in any way a commentary on that, in the sense that by using a form that is conventional and linear— and with characters at this juncture striving for light without darkness, for an ideal that's not really situated in time, if the conventional form was commenting on the desire for conventional love. I mean, I guess I think
1: probably so. Um, Or, you know, one of the things... I wanted to do in the loving R section, um, because so much of the book and, you know, especially those two chapters we've been talking about, Gospodar and the little saint, and then so much of my writing and art making in general, um, much of what belongs to you is about trying to dramatize and inhabit kind of extreme experience. um, you know, my first education in art was opera, and opera is an art of extremes. And I also think it's just part of my temperament to think that extremity, and especially tragedy, is where the greatest meaning lies. I don't think that's true. In fact, I I believe very strongly that it's false and that... Um, Profundity lies in all experience, that any human experience can give access to all human experience. Um, And I want the art I make to be bigger than my temperament. And I wanted in this central section to explore ordinariness and the kind of ordinariness that the narrator had thought he could never have access to. And especially in the section that you referenced. Um, the Frog King, where he looks at those paintings. You know, so those paintings, which are so unremarkable at first, and which are um, also of the most everyday humble objects. They're of pitchers and plates and cutlery. Um, the artist he's describing is not named, but it's Morandi. Um That, you know, Murandi's Mirandi's art, he comes to feel looking at these paintings on the wall as he slowly learns how to see them. That actually, for all their unassumingness, for all their apparent naivete, that they are profound, that they're great. He says, you know, they, they vibrate at a frequency he wants to tune himself to catch. um, And that that's the promise that you know, even this very ordinary happiness, that it could be accommodating of the profoundest significance. You know, that's something the narrator is striving to understand. And it was something I, as a writer, was trying to challenge myself to represent in writing a story like The Frog King* which is not a story of extremes, which is a story of very ordinary happiness, but to try to write it in such a way that made clear what a profound thing ordinary happiness is.
0: Well, you've talked elsewhere about how the gay community has pursued acceptance from the broader society, largely through respectability politics, by putting forth the idea that we are no different than you. But meanwhile, you point out the culture at large remains repulsed by men having anal sex. And one of the things you wanted to do in this book was to write about anal sex as a physically and emotionally rich experience. And it made me think of your really amazing essay about the poetry of Carl Phillips uh, called Cruising Devotion. And it made me wonder if if one way to, to describe your enterprise is to bring what Phillips has done in poetry into narrative because when I read some of the ways you describe him, they feel very kindred to the, to the ethos of cleanness, not cleanness, the concept, but cleanness, the book. So some of the things you say that Phillips engages with the unspeakable fact of the penetrable male body and that he makes a heroically defiant claim of sacredness on behalf of demonized bodies, that he used sex as a mode of philosophical inquiry that he interrogates dichotomies to the point of disillusion, that the limit experience of extreme sex is similar to the mystic's limit experience of God. And when I I think of the Loving R chapters bookended by our narrator's experiences of extreme sex, I think of your line from the essay, the crux of Phillips's poems is this, a life of pure abandon, a life of pure restraint, They are irreconcilable and neither is bearable in itself. So, I guess you made me wonder if Phillips, in a way, is a pole star of sorts for cleanness. And either way, if you could talk more about men, penetrating men, as a writing aspiration for the book and as a guessing potentially political aspiration for the book as well as literary.
1: Sure. So that essay about Carl Phillips's work, um, you know, that was a a fascinating and intense and felt like a kind of profound experience for me as a writer to write it. Um, I felt in that that I came closer than I've ever come before to the kind of writing about literature I would like to do, which is a writing about literature um, that eschews the kind of smartness and mastery that I was taught to aspire to when I was doing a PhD at Harvard, say um, in favor of a more expressive, affective writing that attempts to convey what art or a particular work of art or body of art has meant to me, how it's helped me live my life. And Carl Phillips's poetry has been central to my life. Um, you know, I would say, um, he is a lodestar for me. I mean, he's one of the points of my aesthetic compass. Um, there are others, you know, Frank Bedart clearly is a point on my aesthetic compass. Also Keith Haring, whom I discuss in that essay. I think, um, you know, part of the essay is drawing a kind of elaborate analog between or analogy between, um, Haring and Phillips. David Wojnarowicz, James Baldwin, um, you know, I mean, I think there is this, um, also Jesse Norman, you know, Jesse Norman singing four last songs or singing the Liebestod, Anthony Rolf Johnson singing Peter Grimes, you know, all of these are, as you say, load stars. And I do think, um, You know, I would love to write something that could convey the experience of a limited being encompassing limitedness, limitlessness, as powerfully as Jesse Norman singing the Liebestod. You know, those are huge, um, not, inspiration is too confined a word. They are like limit experiences for me. And so, yes, I mean, one of the things that made writing the essay on Phillips feel so profound to me as as just an, a, a personal experience was um, recognizing my debt to him, um, recognizing the extent to which his work had fed my own thinking and living and writing for, I mean, more than 20 years. Um, you know, I end that essay... Um, which I I wrote in the year before cleanness came out. Um, The word cleanness appears in the final line, and I intend that as a kind of um, acknowledgement of what I owe to him. Um, And I do think Phillips is really extraordinary. And I had, you know, uh, writing that essay was wonderful too because You know, I engaged intensely with Carl Phillips's work in a kind of rigorous way. You know, I spent two months just reading and rereading the poems for the first time in many, many years, um, you know, with the whole body of his work, which is quite large, and seeing how radical it is and how brave it is. I mean, even the earliest books, um, and especially so in presenting, yes, analogy, you know. um, sex between men, penetration between men. As to what that means more generally, um, you know, I know that it feels still transgressive to write about the penetrable male body, and especially to write about it in a way that presents the act of penetration between men not just as an act of um, domination or an assertion of a kind of violence and not just as an act of sort of tenderness and, but as something that sort of sounds all the notes, that um, that feels really transgressive. You know, I do think politically it's true that, you know, the the... Advertising campaign that purchased marriage equality for us, and I think marriage equality is a crucial right, um, but that that advertising campaign was largely aimed at making America forget that queer people have sex and especially forget that gay men have anal sex. And so to reclaim that and, you know, to put that at the center of art as Several passages in cleanness try to do, you know, I do think that is um it feels very important to me to do that. It feels important to me to claim that, as i as I've said elsewhere, as this morally and affectively rich act of communication um and also. As a site of beauty, you know, to write the penetrated, penetrating male body in a way that lavishes on it all of the beauty-making resources of the lyric tradition in English, like that feels really important as a claim of value made, not a claim of value, not an argument of value, but a recognition of the value um, of those bodies. In
0: case you just tuned in, we're talking to Garth Greenwell about his latest book, Cleanness. You often describe your two books as being porous to each other. And I wanted to ask you a question about porousness. Well, before I, I do that, I, I want to say that when Carmen Maria Machado was here, she's stealing your idea of not calling this book a novel or a short story collection for her next book. The refusal of labeling the book as either a collection or a novel, I think is interesting and in the spirit of a lot of what you've you've talked about. But you've also talked about how the two books are porous to each other, your two books, that They're standalone, but you want them to be porous. Um, And I wanted to ask about porousness with regards to language, because you had this really interesting conversation on the Suwannee podcast, and you talked about the history of English and how England was an insular place, that the Renaissance arrived there 100 years after everywhere else, and that it was always a great writer cracking open the insularity of English as a language and as a literature and letting something else in that has made English porous, maybe even against its will. And you mentioned Wyatt reading Petrarch and Coleridge reading the German philosophers and Eliot and Pound reading French poetry. But I guess I wanted to transpose this question of insularity to the United States because this question reminds me of my conversation with Eliot Weinberger. And among other things, he's the, he was the main translator of Octavio Paz. And he said that up until around the mid-century, uh, mid-20th century, with the exception of Robert Frost, almost every, every major American poet translated, that they saw it as their responsibility and gift to poetry and the English language, that it was this act of bringing other writers from outside of English into English that kept English alive and changed it. But that that isn't happening anymore. It's super rare um, in the poetry community. And I guess I wanted to hear your thoughts um, partially because a lot of your prose influences with the exception of Henry James come from non-American writers, um, your thoughts about porousness and English and the insularity of the American artistic sensibility.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's something that troubles me immensely. You know, um, I work with a lot of MFA students these years and, um, It troubles me how few of the Americans among them have access to languages other than English, how few of them can read in any other language, how few of them read widely in translation even. Um, You know, English is a global language in a way that is unprecedented in human history. And um, I think that gives english language speakers the feeling that um they don't need other languages i mean just as a practical matter they often don't um you can travel the world in english it's the lingua franca um and that sort of anything worth knowing about will be translated into english which is of course like grievously untrue but i think many of them feel it um it does not matter that English is this global language, I think that if you're only reading work from a single language, your reading is provincial. And you have a radically limited sense of what literature can do, of the kinds of games that can be played in literature. I think it's true. It's simplified, but I don't think simplified beyond the point of truthfulness. That innovation in English literature has come from eruptions into English of other languages, other literatures. And I do ask myself, where is that coming from now? Um, You know, I worry a lot about the fact that, you know, if you look beyond Spanish and French, um, there are languages no one is translating into English. You know, when I think about Bulgarian, this is this is changing, but slowly, um, you know, there's basically one very, very brilliant woman who translates Bulgarian literary fiction into English. Well, that's um, not acceptable. You know, Um, if I were made king of MFA programs, it would be a requirement that you could read well enough in another language to engage with literature in that language. I do think it, it, it something that, I, I mean, I think American, ling- American literature is incredibly exciting right now. Um, but something that makes me worry about it is the number of my students who only read in one language.
0: Hmm. Do you feel like your English syntax is porous to the music of Bulgarian.
1: Oh, absolutely. There's no question, um, and not just to to Bulgarian. I mean, my trio, my holy trinity of contemporary prose stylists. Um, that's Zebald, Bernhard, and Marias. None mm-hmm. of them is an English language writer, right? Um, you know, uh, so and each of them had a, a radical impact on my writing. Um, also as I was writing What Belongs to You, and I remember very intensely as I was writing the second section and kind of losing heart um, or maybe it was even after I had finished the first draft and was still in the state where I couldn't look at it without feeling sick. um, I read a a brilliant Bulgarian writer Teodora Dimova, um, her book Maikite, The Mothers, and that her Bulgarian sentences sort of pointed a way forward for my English language sentences. And then absolutely just the fact that I was speaking Bulgarian every day. Um, the rhythms of Bulgarian are very deep in the sentences of what belongs to you and cleanness. I mean, the music of the book would be entirely different without Bulgarian.
0: Hmm. Well, you've talked about how your experience of cruising, not only first prepared you to be a poet, but that cruising itself is a kind of poetry, that they serve as a simile for each other. But I also felt like it, it serves as a simile for translation. When I think about the encounters, particularly in your first book, and the the various ways each of the people have power in a different way than the other. So the narrator is American, can leave at any time. The American has more money, but Mitko knows the country and mm. knows the language and he has the power of being desired. Mm. Um,
1: and the power of violence. He has more access to violence.
0: Yeah. Well. And, yeah. and of course, two languages and the cultures that when you meet in that third space in translation, it feels like you're, you're, you're having to engage with all of these various ways in which one has a certain sense of power or powerlessness compared to the other
1: as I say, kind of any mixture, you know, any meaningful mixture. I mean, I do think, you know, translation is an attempt to um, create a kind of hybrid space of communion, of linguistic communion, aesthetic communion, affective communion. Um, It's to create that space demands that we are willing to enter into the necessarily messy and unclean and problematic spaces of cultural exchange and of trying to negotiate in a way that is bearable all of those differentials you were talking about. Um,
0: Could you talk about that in relationship to books being called problematic? Because as you talk here about our willingness to engage with the messy the unclean and the problematic. I think about you in many places, but one is with Ilya Kaminsky in the Paris review, talking about crossing boundaries and collisions between cultures and culture and these questions of cultural appropriation. Um, And then also the notion of, and the limitations of staying in one's lane. And I would like to hear more about your questions and concerns about labeling something problematic, not as a way to engage with it, but maybe as a way to stay clean ultimately if, if we're using the the language of the book.
1: I mean I think that's exactly what it often is. You know, I take it for granted that um any significant attempt to engage with questions that matter is going to be problematic in the sense that it's um you know the price of engagement is losing the innocence of one's own righteousness. Like I hate the use of problematic as it's often used in the sort of capital D discourse, which I guess mainly means Twitter. Um, You know, this idea that, right, that if we label a book problematic, it's not to say, so let's all read it and talk about it in book club. But instead there is a kind of moral superiority in not engaging with it. Well, I just think that's anti art and also deeply inhumane. You know, one of the things that I think is putting American democracy at crisis, in crisis, is that we are also addicted to our own righteousness, that we would rather turn our backs on problems than do anything to try to help one another. I think it is just a fact of human existence that we are all neck deep in the shit. That is certainly true for anyone living in America. And um, none of us gets to be clean. None of us gets to be righteous. And the question is, how can I filthy thing that I am help you filthy thing that you are? Like, where can we go from here? If we acknowledge that we are both neck deep in the shit? Um, You know, I worry a lot about creating a critical discourse Um, That, much like our political discourse, values purity um, in a kind of absolute way, and is terrified of giving up a sense of its own purity. I just, I think, you know, I just take it for granted that um, I take it, well, I admire very much. I admire, well, what do I want to say? I mean, I don't want to pretend that these problems are not really problems. I don't want to pretend that one can just be, um, you know, unreflective about um, how one moves through the world, about how one engages with other people, quite the contrary. Um, I think, you know, if we are talking about writing across difference or reading across difference or engaging across difference politically... Um, of course, we have to be mindful, we have to be reverent. You know, I think um, art that imagines a cross difference successfully, that is, the research that that requires is not just research that happens in libraries and books and scholarly contexts. although it is that research, but it's an affective research. It's a research of love, of sort of... Um, a sense of sort of knowing what it feels like to stand beside someone and face what they face. You know, I feel that in Hanya Yanagahara's A Little Life, which I think is one of the profoundest books about um, gay men's inner lives in recent decades, um, Hanya Yanagahara is not a gay man, but, you know, she is someone who has done that research in love to understand what it means. I cannot bear a vision of human life that says that act of imagination is impossible. I agree that it's difficult. I agree that it's vexed. I agree that it's never going to be perfect. I agree that there are lots of ways we can fail, but it is also just a fundamental belief of my life that not only is it possible, it is absolutely necessary if we are going to create a world in which we can survive. Well,
0: I was hoping we could end with talking about your next project, which takes place in Kentucky, which is both you and your narrator's childhood home. And partially that it kind of dovetails well with what you just said around being able to imagine and bring language to something fraught and difficult. Um, You do this incredible job with Bulgaria as setting and character and with aspects of the country that I feel like spark and resonate against what's going on for your narrator internally. That Bulgaria is a country where, through its entire modern history, it's been occupied by foreign powers, its fate determined by forces larger than it, and where the country seems to be, at least according to the narrator, seems to be dying with everyone who can, leaving, leaving as soon as they can and yet you write about Bulgaria with a sense of love, and you make even the Soviet-style apartment buildings feel vibrant and interesting and worth attention. Uh, And this made me curious about your engagement now with Kentucky as place, and particularly because when you wrote that 40-page uninterrupted paragraph that is set in Kentucky in your first novel, you've described the section as a a place where the narrator, who who prides himself on his command of language, losing his ability to shape it, that the the content or the, the places he needs to go in his return to his childhood makes it difficult for him to put shape to the words. And so we get this uh, uninterrupted text. Um, and I also think about some of the most moving conversations I listened to of you on recent podcasts, many of which took place in Kentucky. Uh, so talk to us about this project, if you're willing, the, this returning to Kentucky and then this attempt to render and shape language maybe differently than you shaped it and what belongs to you as you write a book set more fully in Kentucky.
1: One thing, um, since you brought it up and quoted a word, um, that, uh, the New York Times used in in a headline for one of the – well, for the, the review that Colm Toybean wrote of um, cleanness, which was the idea of Bulgaria as a dying country. Um, so that – Toybean in that um, article quoted the last page of What Belongs to You, where that is spoken by a Bulgarian high school student mm. um, and spoken in a whisper. As a kind of fear, um, I was actually, you know, I that the the column Toy Bean piece. Of course, he didn't write the headline. It was the headline. The headline in print was "Feels Like Home," which is a great headline, but the headline online was "In a Dying Country," Garth Greenwell's narrator comes alive. Yeah, which um, you know, it was so. So the review again, Column Toy Bean did not write that headline. Um, The review was such a careful, um, sort of beautiful engagement with the book. And I I was quite pained by that headline um, and by sort of everything in it. Um, The the things that are described as crises or, or, or serious problems in Bulgaria, a kind of failing infrastructure, the um most serious demographic crisis in the EU um those are true those are facts um but i don't think of bulgaria as a dying country it is true that uh, i heard many bulgarians say that or things like that but my narrator does not state that i hope that the books even as they um represent the real difficulties facing Bulgaria, that the books also represent the vibrancy of Bulgaria, the creativity of Bulgarians as they face those difficulties. Um, I love Bulgaria. And it was painful for me to see in the New York Times a headline that stated as if it were fact in a dying country, and then the second part of the headline garth greenwell 's narrator comes alive, I thought, well, what does that mean you know yeah. he wasn 't alive before he arrived, and what does he in what sense is he alive at the end of the book? You know, columnum Toybean says something like the narrator comes of age or you know something of that, which that seems true, but that 's not comes alive so Anyway, that's just I'm I wanted to have a platform to sort of express no, my dismay. I'm yeah. glad you
0: did and, and I'll say for at least this one reader that your love and the narrator's love for the country seems super evident. Yeah. Especially that that uh story where they're on in the protest and they're yeah, they're walking people. they're yeah. walking around in a way he's saying farewell. That's right. And it's beautiful. I mean, it's you can sense the pain the narrator has about departing.
1: Right. Yeah. And that, I mean, I think of that story especially as one that really is about, you know, this incredible energy in Bulgaria, um, which is, I felt in 2013 in the, the extraordinary protests that filled the streets of Sofia and the streets of every city in the country. Um, so anyway, that was just a, an aside about um, – how sad that headline made me and we tried to, uh, to get it changed. Um, and so far as I know, it hasn't been changed online. Um, but Bulgaria is not a dying country. Everyone should go there. It's a beautiful place. Um, I miss it very much. The next project will be in Kentucky. Um, there's a lot that I don't know about it. Um, I left Kentucky when I was 16 and spent almost all of my life running away from it. I had not been back in over a decade when I went on book tour in 2016 and I ended up staying, um, several days and discovering my hometown Louisville, um, rediscovering it and discovering that, um, it was not at all the place I thought I knew. I also was introduced to, um, an extraordinary historical archive at the university of Louisville, um, The Williams Nichols Archive, which is one of the largest regional LGBT historical archives in the United States. And I spent six weeks one summer going through that archive and discovering with amazement a queer history that I had had no access to when I desperately needed it, um, when I was a, a teenager in Kentucky. And I know that I want the next book to try to in some way engage with that history And I don't know exactly what that will mean. I don't know what it will mean narratively. I don't know what it will mean formally. Um, You know, again, I am attracted to right now, I'm attracted to the idea of books that are uh, complete, autonomous, formally distinct, but that intermingle. And I think that one thing that this next novel will do is intermingle with the second section of what belongs to you and in some way engage with the world of that. But I don't know. I don't know yet what that means.
0: Well, it was a great pleasure having you on the show, Garth.
1: The pleasure was all mine. Thank you.
0: We're talking today to Garth Greenwell, the author of Cleanness from FSG. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naaman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at KBOO.fm. Garth Greenwald adds a reading of Frank Bedard's poem, Overheard Through the Walls of the Invisible City, for the bonus audio archive. This joins supplemental material by Daniel Jose Older, Carmen Maria Machado, Miriam Taves, Lely Long Soldier, Richard Powers, Ted Chang, Brandon Shimoda, and others. All of this can be found and more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com. Slash Barbara Browning.